you have a Bible with you, you can turn to Psalm 32. Brian already made the joke this morning that when you're out of series and it's between Christmas and not much is going on, well, what do you do? You preach the Psalms. That's just kind of the, the cliche. Let me, uh, let me defend that for a couple of reasons or a couple of things. Uh, one, Psalm 32 has already been quoted. In fact, so much of the Old Testament, Psalms included, are quoted throughout Romans, which is what we're teaching through right now. And we've just come in the last month through teaching Romans chapter 4. And this concept, this idea is so central that we're going to find in Psalm 32 is so central to the Christian life that Paul wants to introduce the idea of justification by saying, well, listen, if you get what David got, then you're starting to track with me. And so Psalm 32, I think, is a good way for us to get back into and to think about. It's a review of sorts of the gospel, the fullness of the gospel that we've been learning in Romans. A second reason is a little more personal, and that is, is that over the course of the last number of years, I have sat through and been able to go to different, you know, conference kind of things or trainings or whatever it is, and I've heard this psalm taught a few different times. And each time, it feels to me like a reminder, a building blocks kind of thing, a foundational sort of thing that moves me, and it makes me want to say something like, don't ever forget this. Don't ever give this up. And yet, I haven't had many opportunities to teach on things like, or on this passage, on this psalm, and so this seemed like a good opportunity to remind us. You know, we're about to hear a ton about New Year's resolutions. Usually, those stay quiet until New Year. They're not like Christmas, which creeps into every other holiday. Usually, New Year's sort of stays over there, so we're not talking about resolutions yet, but soon you will be thinking about what should I do in the coming year? Who should I be? What habits do I want to form? And as we read Psalm 32, I want us to remember and to think about that this is one of the fundamental foundational habits of the Christian life. Psalm 32 is a psalm of confession, a confession of sin. And I want us to think about, and I want you to be thinking about, and perhaps God's Spirit would help us to more solidify our commitment to confessing. A Christian is nothing if he's not a confessing person, if he's not a confessing Christian, if he's not the kind of person who brings sins to God. That is foundational to who we are. So let's read together. There's 11 verses here in Psalm 32. Let's read together, and then we will discuss. A mascal of David. Blessed is the one whose transgression... A good start. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me, my strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. 
Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. This psalm is used copiously throughout the New Testament to describe the heart of David, the heart of a man who, whose heartbeat was in line with God's, a man who demonstrates for us what it looks like to acknowledge sin and then to receive the mercy and grace of God. He is a forebearer. He goes ahead of us to show us what this ought to look like. And as we read the psalm, I want to point out something, and I want to consider something that I believe is one of the greatest challenges of all of life. And it's to remember this simple fact that when God calls us to confess sin, He is doing so for our joy. He's doing so for our happiness. So it could be said, if this was a topical sermon, I could say to you, as we end 2021, I want to give you three or four simple steps to a happy life. Your best life now. It's that kind of a a sermon. Because we note how Psalm 32 opens. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven. This could easily be translated happy. It's an exuberant happiness. It's a reminder that God wants and has created human beings to be happy. Verse 2 starts the same way. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. Happy, happy, happy. Then a contrast of verses 10 and 11 as we end the psalm. This is how it sort of caps together. This is the way these songs work. Usually, poetry has a, a way of doing this, or good storytelling has a way of doing this, where the beginning comes back at the end. And the contrast of verses 10 and 11, many are the sorrows of the wicked. So, sorrows seeming to be a negative thing, but verse 11, having come through what's instructed of us in this psalm, be glad in the Lord and rejoice and shout for joy. What a picture. When was the last time you just gave a good old-fashioned shout for joy? I think joy and happiness have been in short supply for many people over the last number of years. So I think this is a good practice to think about, to get in the spirit of what does God want from me? What does he want for me? Well, the psalm says, come through this instruction and what God is instructing us and calling us to is to get to the kind of place where we have to shout for joy. And I really mean it. Think back. When can you remember the last time that you chortled with laughter? You know what chortling is like? My cousin started dating and then got engaged to and then married a woman who had the most hilarious of laughs because she kept trying to hold it in until finally one explosive snort let everyone know her delight. You know a person like that? So when are your happiest moments? When was the last time you just let go? You were lost in happiness. Like you really just thought, Okay, I can't do it anymore. I just, I just have to shout. This is it. It's one of my favorite things about Christmas. You know, you don't always nail it, but sometimes you give the gift that you're just excited to give, and then you see this little moment in the person, and it just, it just comes out. So my son gave a speech earlier this year, and in the speech, he was talking about persistence and about going forward and overcoming fears, and he came upon this, this phrase that he's just loved all year, fortune favors the brave. That's just like his statement. And about three weeks ago, he was convinced, and he wanted me to find a T-shirt. He wanted me to go all around town for him. And I don't know why kids can't learn this, but you don't ask your parents for things or to buy things in the month before Christmas because you're probably going to get it, or it's a good idea, and we're all desperate for ideas. And so we searched 
wide and far, and we find this shirt. And I'm so excited because it's a small little thing. It's a t-shirt. It's a kid's t-shirt. We wrap it up, and amongst all the other things, there's a moment yesterday morning where I'm just, I'm just waiting, and then the package opens, and you can see that if he had wanted to, he can't hold it in. If he had wanted to, he, he could not play it straight. But instead, he opens and he reads it, and he, he just has to throw it down, and he's just excited, and there's a body reaction, and he gives himself over to the happiness of the moment. And he says the phrase, and then he looks at us, and he's, he's just so excited in his face, and he says, you found it, you found one. It's so great. And he's just like, you know, just that kind of thing. When you think of God and what he wants for you, do you believe that he's like this? I think ultimately, this idea, this foundational principle that God not only is, but he is a rewarder of those who seek him. He is a happiness giver of those who go to him consistently. This is the battle at the heart of every human being that we lose so often. It starts in the garden. Did you know that God's keeping happiness from you? I know he gave you all these other things, but he actually is a keeper of happiness. He withholds. And there in the heart of Adam and Eve is this question, this exchange, this battle. Does God have our happiness in mind? By following him, confessing what is right and good, and following his commands, is this the path to that kind of sheer just, I have to give over now? Or is he a withholder? And I believe that for many people, this battle rages consistently through life. So here I am, about to, or attempt, I'm about to attempt to convince you that a consistent, ongoing confession of sin, saying to God all of the worst parts of us, the things that we're most ashamed of, the things that we never thought could come forth. I'm about to try to convince you that this is God's design. He's trying to, he's searching wide and far, and he has found the perfect gift, the thing to give you so that you would be in a place where you had to give yourself over to joy. I want more than anything in the coming year to be happier. And I, I think that God has designed it this way. He made us to seek reward in Him, reward in the life that He designed for us. I want to be a little bit happier. The kids were discussing the differences over a couple of years. You know, in 2019, I got to take a sabbatical, and one of the things that we did that we've always wanted to, I've always wanted to, to do, we went to a, a golf tournament, we went to the U.S. Open, and it was at Pebble Beach, and it was on, on Father's Day weekend. So the kids just felt beaming. I mean, they didn't... Don't tell them. They didn't have much to do with it, but they were excited. They felt like they gave it to me. Like, we brought Dad to Pebble Beach on Father's Day. That's 2019. And then in 2020, for Father's Day, we escaped Tallahassee for a couple of days. We found our way to a top golf in Orlando. We were masked up, had to make appointments ahead of time to be head tested or something to get in. Then the little top golf thing, even though it's outside, is shrouded in all plastics, and you're like looking through like this. And so the kids walked over to the computer machine for Top Golf, and they plugged in the virtual course, Pebble Beach. And I said, Dad, two years in a row, we, bought you to, we brought you to Pebble Beach for Father's Day. And I just thought, if this isn't a wonderful example of 2020, 
I don't know what else is. Last year, I could hear the waves and smell the trees. I was giddy. I was happy. I was pointing out obscure 180th ranked golfers to the kids like they cared. I was so excited. And then, though it was fine, we made it and God provided. I mean, everyone, I just, just feel like, yeah, what an interesting contrast. And I think to myself that many of us have made those exchanges, and if you persist in your sin, you have chosen the top golf version of Pebble Beach rather than the real lively sounds and smells and tastes and sights of the real thing. So that's the exchange. This is what's happening when we sin, when we obey the, disobey the commands, and then worse, this is what Psalm 32 is going to tell us, once we've done that, worse, once we hold on to our sin, we're choosing a less happy course. So I'm going to outline this psalm in the following ways. First, to convince you that this is an offer of joy. God wants you to be joyful. The commands of God are not burdensome, including the command to confess when we've broken the commands. That's how this works. But I know we have to be convinced, and I need to be convinced. I'm not just saying this to you. I need to be convinced of this. There's not some path of sin that I get to exchange when I feel overwhelmed that is leading to greater happiness. It's just not there. And then once I've gone on that path, because I don't believe these things, then God has a mechanism for me to off-road. I have an exit. It's the exit of the practice of confession. And so I'm going to look at Psalm 32 in these three big categories. First, the burden of sin, the reality of it. We just need to acknowledge the burden of sin. And by this, I mean unconfessed sin. All of us think we can carry sin better than we really can. So first, we'll look at the burden of sin. Second, I'm going to have a heading that I'm just calling plead the fifth. And I have completely and utterly, without apology, stolen this from a message that I heard a couple months ago, and I'll tell you about it. Plead the fifth. And then finally, this idea of stubborn insanity. Okay, so here's what we got. We got the burden of sin. We got plead the fifth. And then we have stubborn insanity. Maybe just I'm going to convince you that it's insane to not practice these things. So first, the burden of sin. This is what David experiences. I love, first of all, that Psalm 32 is a psalm of confession, that when God wants to call us to confession in the Bible, he leads us by way of someone who has experienced this. This is not a message coming from a holier-than-thou, I don't know what you'd be going through, but let me just tell you, clean up your act. This is a man who lived through the horrors of feeling and knowing the depth of treacherous, murderous, adulterous sin. And he says of this, in contrast to, not as the psalm starts, it's an offer of joy, blessed is, happy is, happy is. He goes to verse 3, for when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I'm going to treat these two verses together, three and four, as this idea of burden of sin. And I think that the burden of sin is shown here in two ways. One, there's a kind of inner wasting. And then second, there's an outer heaviness. I'm going to have them in those categories. There's an inner wasting and an outer heaviness. First, he says, there is an inner wasting. My bones were wasting away. My groaning all day long. He says, this is what it felt like to try to deal with and contain the guilt and shame of my sin. When I read this, I can't help but to think of my friend who battled for four plus 
years, nearly four years, with stage four pancreatic cancer. And the thing that we talked about often, every time that I'd see him and we'd check in and he was a little more thin, or some activity or some pain had showed up, he would talk often about how in olden times that cancer was referred to as wasting disease because it was an unknown, slow-moving, life-sapping disease that seemed to just slowly leave less of the person. And it's one of those things that when you see someone fighting through this, it is absolutely heroic for someone to defiantly say, I am living, I have life, I am continuing on, all while knowing that there is something hidden inside that is intent on slowly sapping the liveliness away. So David has said here, we must not miss it, I believe what David has said here is, all of those who are intent on self-management of sin, self-management, we create in ourselves little compartments to put this and to put that, and it's hidden away, and it's fine, and it's there, that we are harboring cancer. It is an inner disease And though they may not be public, that our entire person will end up groaning under the influence, the impact of this silent keeping of sin. In the same way that we must upend the idea that God is a keeper of happiness from us rather than a giver and a a desire for our reward, we must give up the idea that it would somehow be better to keep our sin than to confess it. You cannot, you know, I I feel sometimes like it's when people say that they're good at multitasking. You know that every single bit of research ever in the history of the world has shown that no one is good at multitasking? The only people who think they're good at multitasking are the kind of people who focus for 15 seconds on one thing, then quit. Your Your brain can't be in two places at once. So they focus for 15 seconds, then focus for 15 seconds, then go back and forth. So you might be good at swapping, and maybe that's what they mean by multitasking, but actually staying focused on two things at once, or more than that, is impossible. And I feel similarly about the way that people think that they're good at harboring their sin. I think so many of us, you know, if I hear another, I'm just going to call it, it might be a, who knows what you can call anything these days, but when I was going through high school or early college, we would have called this like emo songs. Is emo still a thing? (laughs) I know I'm canceled now. I don't know if you can say that anymore, but they were like emo songs. They were emo songs. That's what it was. You know, the whole idea is like, behind this smiling face, you don't know that I'm a sad clown. Or, you know, or something like that. You know what I'm saying. Like that kind of thing. Everyone feels like that's a reality. And what I think is that all of us at the depth of our being, feel the weight of our sin consistently, constantly. It nags at us. And those harbored things will constantly accuse. They will rob us of moments of joy because we'll think we don't quite deserve it. The New Testament tells us if we have confidence before God, if our sins, if our hearts don't condemn us, we'll have confidence before God. I think so many of us, our confidence is robbed because we are trying to self-manage sin. 
We tell ourselves, I'm fine, it's okay, I dealt with this, it's all right, it's okay, no one needs to know, it's okay, it's okay, it's all right. But I believe that in the most gracious of moments, God might give you the understanding, the reality, like, I'm just not okay. This is not okay. This is not all right. I'm not a multitasker in that sense. So that's an inner wasting. And I would invite you to be more honest with yourself about the reality of the impact of hidden sin. Second, and this is astounding, but Psalm 32 says that in addition to an inner wasting, there's an outer heaviness. David says that when he kept silent, day and night, God's hand was heavy upon me. God's hand was heavy upon him. Now, here's my guess, and this is one of the most terrible things that happens when we try to harbor sin. The hand of God in this way feels heavy upon him because it is a hand of holiness calling him to righteousness and saying to him, I'm here, and I see, and I remember. And what harboring of sin has done for him is it takes the hand of God, which should be his greatest joy and delight, a hand of comfort, and it creates a hand of heaviness. Have you ever felt the sort of panic of someone with good intentions busting in and getting too close to your sin? You feel annoyed by them. Why did they have to point out that I picked up my phone again? Just, just stop. Why did they ask about the time that I spent wherever? Like, why did they even? What ends up happening is we come to resent the good and the right and the loving people around us who might actually lead us to a place of repentance because it threatens what we're holding on to. And a hand that should be a hand of comfort and of joy feels like a hand of heaviness. It's, it's a burden on us. And I believe that what David is trying to show us is that even in the midst of his sin, God was still there. What a gift it is that God's Spirit still weighs heavy on those of us who are out for our own unhappiness. In the midst of the harboring of our sins, God lovingly, persistently places his hand. It's one of the consistent marks of revival in God's people is that God's hand seems to press a little heavier. And this is his love for us. So the burden of sin is nearly always greater, stronger, and deeper than we're willing to admit. It has inner complications that leads to wasting and a groaning when we try to self-deal, and it makes us subtly either resent, run from, or feel rather than lightness and love from God. It makes us sense and realize that His Spirit is upon us in a different kind of way, a heavy kind of way. So what does David do, and what should we do if we feel this? Well, my hope and my desire would be that we become the kind of people who delight in confessing. See, that's the crazy part here. I know it sounds odd, but to confess, to come to the light, is the path of God to our happiness. And I hope that it's one of the things that marks us most consistently. Oh, what do you do there at that church thing? What is that churchy thing you do? Does one of the things that comes to mind is that you have an opportunity every single week to confess your sins? 
You have a moment where someone will instruct you and say, remember now your sins. Let's bring them to God who is gracious to forgive. Is a confession something that we look forward to? I hope that it is. Because starting in verse 5, verse 5 through 7, Paul says, Paul says, well, he, he's quoted, he quotes David in, in Romans chapter 4, but David says, I acknowledged my sin to you. I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, he says, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in a rush of great waters they shall not reach him. You're a hiding place. You preserve me. You surround me. He confesses and discloses. So Brian and I went to a gathering of leaders from the churches of the part of the church planning network that we're part of. It's called the Harbor Network. And if you're confused, yes, it was called the Sojourn Network before. They rebranded. I heard a message taught on Psalm 32. And in it, very, very helpfully, this pastor contrasted what's being offered here as a path to true happiness with a venerated and good part of our Constitution. Talked about the idea that we have a Fifth Amendment and that it is well known in legal circles and in, I believe, in pop culture that when someone could potentially incriminate themselves, when they have potential where maybe something that they're involved with would come out into the light and lead to negative consequences, that they're taught to, and I actually think that it's good legal advice, and please don't make a civic jump here. I believe this is a, a good civilian protection. It's a due process of law. It's fine. But it's interesting, and it's possible that this attitude could be brought with us into spiritual life, into our relationship with God, essentially that any time we're threatened with potential harm, we plead the fifth. Where were you on the plead the fifth? Do you know about this plead the fifth? Do you indeed have plead the fifth? And many of us take that, perhaps part of due process, good civilian protection, and we treat our spiritual lives this way. So we go through the motions and we're a part of the rituals, but generally speaking, we show up to court, but we plead the fifth. Because we don't want anything remotely incriminating to be tied to us. In other words, we may have come to Jesus by the confession of our sins, but we want to deny that it persists in any form from there on out. And now here's the jump that I wish the, the wonderful pastor had made here. And I don't, I think it's, uh, maybe it's a little bit too much, and he knew that, but I, I, I'm just going to say it. I think that what God calls us to is to plead the fifth in a different way. And by that, I mean the fifth verse <laughs> of Psalm 32. Do you see how maybe he thought, I'm sure he thought of it and he just thought it's too much, but I think it's just the right amount. I think it's just the right amount. I believe that the Spirit of God would have us as a practice to see this psalm as a different kind of amendment, that in our constitution we do in fact plead the fifth. We invite one another consistently to say, I acknowledged my sin. Self-incrimination. That this was, in fact, our path. That if we were to plead the fifth in a constitutional kind of sense, we would be giving up all hope of happiness. That's what Psalm 32 says. 
We come to a moment where the questions are asked and the Spirit presses us and we say, I, I actually, could, could you stop? I'd like to go back to the inner wasting and the heaviness of God's hand, please. And David cries out from his own experience and the Spirit of God cries out and says, do not do that. Plead the fifth in a different way. Be willing, be bold enough to acknowledge that there is in fact incriminating evidence all around us all the time. That we don't come to Jesus at one point confessing sin and then slowly live a life where we need him less. But every single one of us needs him and his forgiveness of our sins more than we ever have right now. That if we are not clothed with the righteousness of Jesus, if we don't get to exchange what we've brought here this morning with what he's given, then we have no hope. So I believe that what David would say, and I hope that we organize our church in a particular way where confession becomes the norm. No one says, oh, do I get to go to court tomorrow? That's great. Can I get in the witness stand? Because someone can ask me some incriminating questions. That sounds insane. But because we know the mercy of God and his desire for our happiness, we might say something like this. Do I get to gather with Christians tomorrow? Are they going to remind me of of my need of righteousness? Are they going to tell me what I have in Jesus? Are they going to invite me to exchange my sins for the perfect holiness of another? That sounds great. Can I show up and do that? I've been holding on to this for way too long. Where can I get to? This is, I think it's a language that everyone apparently in our culture wants. Where can I get to a safe place? Where can I be upheld? Where can I, as David says in Psalm 32, where could I be found as a, as a hiding place? Where can I find a hiding place? Where can I be preserved and surrounded with shouts of deliverance? Well, it's in a place of confession. Now, I know that I'm making this in big contrasts, right? I'm making this in big contrasts, and I don't expect you to skip down the aisle saying, going to confess my sins today, going to confess my sins. I know, I know you're not going to do that because sin is terrible, and you feel it, and you're ashamed, and you don't know if you're going to bring it But my wonder is maybe at the practice of this, maybe in the moment of practicing these things, maybe we would get to the point where we would see confession of our sins as the thing that brings us life in a way that very few other things can. Maybe you could think about our services in in this way. I don't know if you noticed it, but every single time when we lead through the songs, there's a moment where we lead in a corporate prayer of confession. We don't do this haphazardly. It's not by accident. It's written there to show you and to to give you words to speak, to help remind you that this is something that we want. And then we sing songs about confession of sins and forgiveness of sins. And then we assure you that you are offered forgiveness. Then we usually close services by inviting you to a table or saying, here, this is what Jesus has given for the forgiveness of your sins. And all of this, I hope, is seen as an invitation for you to say, you know what, I should confess more freely. This is a place that I can confess. So I would beg you, don't try to manage the burdens of your own sin. The 32nd Psalm tells us you will not be able to manage it, and you must find this path that God has given to your greatest happiness to plead the fifth. And finally, he says, and I love that David acknowledges this. Look, you might think to yourself, you're the only one. This is another temptation of this in holding your sin. You might think, yeah, but other people don't have it like I have it. And other people don't understand what it would be to confess. And other people don't understand how stubborn I am. 
Well, it sounds like David knows just how stubborn people are, including his own heart. He says this in verse 8, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. And then what's the next phrase? Be not like a horse or a mule. It's amazing to me that he acknowledges the absolute stubborn insanity of humankind. Sin has made us insane. God offers us absolute happiness and joy in the midst of his commands. We oftentimes choose a different path. We choose selfishness. We choose something hidden. And then God offers us in the midst of that a way out of pure mercy and forgiveness for the ways that we have gone away from his commands. And we still say, no, thank you. I'd rather hold this and manage it. And so David calls this kind of thing stubbornness, like a horse or a mule. Now, here's the thing, and I believe that he views this. You see, one day, all the stubbornness in the world won't amount to anything in light of the weight of God's full wrath and his holy glory. So it's stubborn insanity in two ways. One, you're insane because you're withholding happiness from your own heart. You're willingly choosing an inner burden. Two, it's insane because in the end, judgment still comes. That's why he says, don't be like a horse or a mule without understanding. And he doesn't say like the horse or mule who just gets to stand in the stall all day. You know, like he, the horse just imagines, or the mule just imagines, now I'm just going to stay here and eat all day. No, look what happens. It must be curbed with bit and bridle or will not stay near you. You see, sometimes God eventually moves us to the point where our sin finds us. And again, this is David's experience. Many of us know, and what I would invite you to, is many of us know that especially in the moment of confession, the difference between disclosure and discovery is massive. You know what's terrible? To be discovered in your sin. And what's even worse is to be stubborn after the discovery of your sin and make those who love you most and care for you and offer you forgiveness, make them to be Sherlock Holmes finding clues all along the way. That even in the moment of being forced to confess, we're pleading the fifth amendment, that is, not verse. And it is, to me, one of the greatest differences in dealing with situations that are very difficult. If someone comes and says, hey, there's this counseling thing, here's what's going on, one of the first things I ask is, were these things disclosed or were they discovered? And I want to say things carefully here. This does not mean that if someone is discovered in sin that their repentance is false. David had to be discovered in his sin. Nathan had to go to him and say, thou art the man. And then David truly repented and wrote Psalm 32. So it does not mean that if you're discovered in it, that now you all of a sudden have a license to say to someone, well, you never meant it anyway. I had to tell you about your sin. No, no, we still treat confession with a willingness to receive. But I would say that for those of us who are fearful that we'll be treated harshly by disclosing sin, I would encourage you to see that when we confess, God rushes to us. And I believe that you'll find more grace, more mercy, more joy, kindness from God and his people than you would have expected. 
And I would encourage us that if you're dealing with someone who brings a disclosure of sin to you, in other words, as far as you can tell, there's nothing motivating them here except a desire from the Spirit of God to say, I need to be rid of this. Please help me. Show me the way to Jesus. And what I would encourage you is that if you are in a situation where someone brings that to you, no matter how heinous, how difficult, no matter what all the implications are that you see down the road, and sin has implications, they can't be undone, they can't always be undone, let's be a people who, like God, rush in that moment with mercy, who go to them and say, what a wonderful thing is happening in you. I see the Spirit of God moving in you, and I want you to know this is painful and it's difficult and you're probably inside out right now, but please let me assure you this is God's evidence that He loves you. What a wonder it is, because do you know how abnormal it is in the world to confess sin? You know how abnormal it is to walk into the courtroom, knock on the door, hey, is there a judge around here? He didn't notice, but I... I didn't pay my taxes or whatever it is. Do you know how abnormal this is? Only the work of the Spirit of God, convincing someone that happiness is offered to them in forgiveness, runs to confess. So I, with David, would encourage you, be the kind of person who sees the disclosure of sin as a pathway to sweet, happy mercy and says, I want to become a person who so consistently discloses that those around me get to feel the free exchange of grace and mercy that comes with us dealing with our sins. And if you're the kind of person who to this point has had to have nearly every sin torn from your tight grip, if it had to be discovered, then I would still say to you, there is mercy for those of us discovered in our sins. There is forgiveness. David finds his way to great joy. Shouts of joy, he says, even though he had to be called out. So the question becomes, how many of us want happiness? How many of us more, want more of the moment when my kid opens this gift that he really wanted and didn't even know if it existed and there it is and he just can't hold it back and so he... Wah. How many of us would long for a consistent chortle? Then we mustn't neglect the gift that God has given us in the confession of sin. My guess is it's the greatest path not only to individual freedom and happiness, but it is one of the things that we can do corporately that most glorifies God. If we only confess our sins and point to Jesus at the time of our conversion, then we have robbed Jesus of the full extent of his forgiveness to us throughout our lives. What is worship except that a corporate group of people come together and consistently for all to see, say, look what we're doing again. Hey, Jesus is still strong enough. He's still better. He's still there. He's still forgiving. And so I would say that in addition to the great songs we sing or the prayers that we pray or the, the, the learned people we become from Scripture, one of the greatest things we do in worship is prove again and again and again to a watching world that Jesus forgives sins. And every single time we get together and we don't do this, we're, we're, we're missing an opportunity what an opportunity cost 
to worship in the truest of senses. There's one aspect of this psalm that I don't want to leave overlooked. And that is that at each of these little sections, there's a, a little phrase. And this is a notation that would have been for song or for poems, selah. And it means to pause and to think on these things. And I can't help but wonder if in a psalm like this, that perhaps David even paused because he needed to pause while he was writing it. Perhaps the feelings came again, the thoughts came again, the confessions came again. And so lest we be like those who look in a mirror but forget what we look like, or hear God's commands but don't implement them, I want to invite you, let's pause together. I'm not asking you to stand and deliver a monologue, but I want to remind you that God is present here with you, and His Spirit beckons you, and you can practice confession here and now. Speak to God the things that you know you've neglected. Describe your anger and your pettiness, all the things that you think you deserved and you've held on to, the ways that you've cursed others or held on to lusts, the things that you've cheated, the worry that you've harbored, all of these things can be cast upon Jesus. So let's pause together. I invite you to take a moment of confession before I pray for us. God, thank you for being for us. Thank you for designing, planning, scheming, and then implementing the gift of forgiveness in your Son. And I pray that even here as this morning that your children, we as your children, we've opened the gift. We've confessed the sins. I pray, God, would you whip up happiness in us greater than a Christmas morning. Help us to find joy 
the lightness of heart that comes with confessing, living in the light. And more than that, I pray that this wouldn't be a single moment in time, but it would set us on a course. That'd give us a, a good kind of habit, a good kind of addiction. An addiction to grace and to mercy. To discovering how gentle and how caring and how forgiving you can be. God, I pray for those sins that are difficult, half-buried, those that have wide-ranging consequences. I pray especially, Spirit of God, would you move carefully with conviction And would you begin to redeem and restore, maybe, maybe the first step to restore trust and belief that what you want is our good. So we confess these things. We confess them not only individually, but corporately. And I ask God, make, make confession a delight to us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.